Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Show wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, you are listening to Q, the podcast. I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power. It is Tuesday, August the 11th. I know we all contain multitudes. All of us are more than more than meets the eye, more than you might learn on the first conversation. But I got to say, our first guest, Jesse Williams, contains multitudes. The the range of stuff that this man is able to to talk about and and has lived is really really staggering. Jesse is an actor, of course. You might know him from Grey's Anatomy. We are talking about his new movie Random Acts of Violence. It's a very scary movie that was directed by Jay Baruchel. Um but long before he was an actor, he was an activist. He still is. You might remember his uh acceptance speech from the uh, BET Awards where he was given a humanitarian honor in 2016. It is chilling. It could have basically been delivered yesterday. Uh, and Jesse and I will, will talk about his activism work, his acting work. And I forgive him for scaring the beans out of me with his new movie because he's just so amazing. After that, Joel Plaskett and Chris Murphy of the band Sloan uh, have something really special, a really special new project to honor their friend uh, and fellow songwriter, the late Matthew Grimson. He was this beloved underground figure in Halifax's music scene in the 90s, wrote really eccentric songs that were super influential on Joel and Chris and a whole bunch of other people that, that you might know. They have put together a posthumous release of an album of Matthew's songs. Um, and we'll talk about what made their friend so special. We'll also listen to some music. And you will hear Tom Powers' conversation with a person the New York Times has called perhaps our greatest living photographer. Her name's Carrie Mae Weems. She's influenced everyone from Beyonce to Spike Lee. Uh, Tom and her spoke about her long, incredible career. In 2015, she became the first black female artist to have a retrospective exhibit at the Guggenheim. Her latest public art project is called Resist COVID Take Six. It's a fascinating chat. Show starts now. Hey, how about we get a little scary? Have a listen to this. Let's go to the cops, man. We need to call the cops. I'm going to... And tell them what? All right, that it's a killer running around recreating murders for my comics? And we just happen to have a binder of all the murder victims. Like, I don't think so. That is a clip from the new horror movie, Random Acts of Violence, written and directed by Jay Baruchel. It's about a comic book writer who realizes that someone is recreating the murders in his popular Slasher Man series, in real life. It stars Jesse Williams, who you might know as Dr. Jackson Avery from the hit hospital drama Grey's Anatomy. I'm pretty. What? And my family. I'm the pretty one. You know, um, my eyes and my smile and my body. I mean, you should see me with a shirt on. It's, It's kind of ridiculous. Dr. Avery tells no lies there. The character is so massively popular that Jesse Williams makes headlines just for changing his hair color. But there's a lot more to Jesse than that. He's also this guy. We know that police somehow manage to de-escalate, disarm, and not kill white people every day. 
So what's going to happen is we are going to have equal rights and justice in our own country, or we will restructure their function and ours. So I don't want to hear any more about how far we've come when paid public servants can pull a drive-by on a 12-year-old playing alone in a park in broad daylight, killing him on television and then going home to make a sandwich. That's Jesse's acceptance speech for BET's Humanitarian of the Year Award. That speech might feel especially relevant right now, but Jesse delivered it four years ago. And as you're about to hear, Jesse's been using his voice for this type of activism long before he became a celebrity. You can find him on the September edition of British Vogue alongside Janet Mock and some other big activists. Lots to talk about with Jesse, but I started by getting him to describe the connection between the character he plays in Random Acts of Violence, named Todd, and the slasher man stories Todd has written. Todd's relationship to the stories that he creates and sells evolves, and I think it becomes further illuminated to him throughout the narrative. I think where he is on in the first scene is very different than where he is at the midpoint and then at the end. And by that, I mean... He feels like, I think, at the outset that he's um, taking a cool spinoff of a true crime um, foundation and created something a little bit, you know, a little bit cathartic and exciting and and worthy of critique. And as it all starts piecing together, he starts realizing it's actually unlocking a lot of deep past trauma uh, and realizing that actually these acts of violence that he's been illustrating, that he's been creating are actually not as random as he thought. They're actually um, uh, have a direct correlation to his childhood experiences, which he had just blocked away and buried in, in the basement of his memories. Um, so, so that is his journey is you know really uh, falling backwards and realizing that a lot of a lot of these things, a lot of these acts of his own and others are um, motivated by something that he didn't even um, realize existed. Never mind healthily process. Huh. It's deep. We also see him him grapple with the consequences of of portraying horrific graphic violence um, in his art as these these acts start to be mimicked in real life. And I, I want to play a clip from the movie. This is an exchange between your character Todd and a radio sh- show host who is interviewing Todd about representing gruesome violence in his comics. I mean, I'm just going off a quote I have from The Atlantic here, but... Every page drips with Walkley's tired brand of senseless violence and morally bankrupt teen angst. Slasher Man is nothing more than yet another toxic element of a dangerous culture that lionizes male violence. Mm-hmm. All the things that are going on with our culture and my comic book's the problem. Hmm. So that's a clip from the new horror film, Random Acts of Violence, starring my guest, Jesse Williams. Tell me about the significance of the exchange we just heard, Jesse. Well, what he's being confronted with is actually uh, pretty timely because I think everybody's kind of checking in their rear view of their life and saying, like, have I done things that were irresponsible, that, were, uh, that had consequences that were unforeseen or, or recklessly um, put into motion? And Todd uh, expects to be on a press tour. When you go on a press tour, you expect it to be uh, fairly friendly interactions, folks that are looking to help you promote your product and, and your hard work. And, and, and he is confronted with um, somebody who is personally impacted by the actual slasher man and also somebody who's going to hold up uh, his critical reviews and, and see if they stand the test of, 
of um, like critical thinking about what you think you're doing. I think a lot of times we we see elements of pop culture uh, claim to be um, claim to be really thoughtful and self-reflective. And now more than ever, we're seeing people really kick the tires on that and look for social responsibility and look for, are you, it doesn't mean necessarily you have to be everybody's hero, but it does maybe mean you should maybe not contribute to a problem or make things worse. And he's being confronted with, Hey, I know people love you and I know you're highly regarded, but come on, man, like uh, this feel, how is this different from gratuitous, uh, reckless violence? And um, that's not a question he sits with very well, I think, regardless of how he reacts in the interview uh, on the spot. It's interestingly meta as you're saying it now. I'm just thinking because the film also, like in telling the story, the film shows us so much graphic, gruesome violence. So is that something that you grappled with while you were while you're shooting? I, I, you know, I think I grappled with it less because I trust Jay and I know that he he deliberately layered these things and not even layered, intertwined them in such a way that as soon as you feel like you've uh, gotten on top of the ball, you're rolling right under the ball again. And, and it's hard to identify like where you are on solid ground. Hmm. Are we critiquing gratuitous violence? If you use the, if you, is it the remedy or the poison? Like which, which one is it? It becomes this kind of chicken or the egg thing. If you're using gratuitous violence to critique it, absent context, what's the difference? Um, uh, so it, it, I, I, I was along for the ride because I know that he had kind of thought this through and it's not supposed to be, you know, my impression of Jay's pitch. And when we first started talking about this was, uh, to do anything but tie it in a nice, neat bow. I think he wanted to be pr- provocative, uh, not in some, uh, in, in a cheap way, but I think he wanted to, Jay wanted folks to leave the theater talking amongst each other going, wait, did he? Oh, so in the beginning, that's why, you know, those kind of dinner and a movie vibe. Yeah, your dinner, and then you can really talk about it. He doesn't want it to be all buttoned up at the end. Okay, got it. Receive the message and leave. Was it, you know, is this, how do we disentangle ourselves from being, wrestling with a problem without being part of the problem? How much of it, we're, 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 you know, we're hypocritical about so many things. We're self-righteous about the way somebody's treated while wearing shoes made in sweatshops you know like there's a there's a there's a lot of um um uh cross-pollination when it comes to kind of self-righteousness and mission-oriented stuff so i think that that is deliberately woven into the the fabric of the film yeah uh also while we're on the topic of gruesome gruesome violence i had to watch like sort of through my fingers were you ever i want to know like were you ever on set and you were so grossed out by something that you were seeing that you were like scared at night when you were going to bed you Jessie? know what i i i get asked a similar question sometimes being on a, a medical show i don't get um grossed out really talia i like i i was a weird kid and you know i never i didn't like do gross things or anything as a kid but i remember uh, on like the public access TV when you're up late on local TV. We never had cable growing up, but there would be like dog racing when you have your, like, I'm having like a sleepover, like some some random crap is on television. And one of those things would be surgeries. Mm. There would be like a, a camera of like an open heart surgery or something and a bucket of ice dumped in and, and then, you know, repairing somebody, operating on somebody. And I would watch that stuff. I wouldn't get, I've stayed awake for some of my surgeries. I've had many sports related injuries, ankles, knees, wrists, thumbs. Um, and I've, I watch, you know, and really engage some of the surgeries they'll let me stay awake for or, but one time, 
I did have all these screws, huge like fish hooks implanted in my thumb that broke in multiple places in the joint. And they pulled them out with these huge, long, like plumber pliers. That's the only time I've ever felt anything. Uh, so I'm numb. I'm numb inside is what I'm trying to tell your your listeners. <laughs> that made all of us squeamish. <laughs> if you're just joining us, uh, this is Q. I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power. And I'm talking to actor Jesse Williams, star of the new horror film Random Acts of Violence, who you might also know for his role as Dr. Jackson Avery on the hit series Grey's Anatomy. Um, or you might know from this speech. We've been floating this country on credit for centuries, yo. And we're done watching and waiting while this invention called whiteness uses and abuses us, burying black people out of sight and out of mind while extracting our culture, our dollars, our entertainment like oil, black gold, ghettoizing and demeaning our creations, then stealing them, gentrifying our genius, and then trying us on like costumes before discarding our bodies like rinds of strange fruit. The thing is that just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. Thank you. That's just a taste of Jesse Williams' BET Humanitarian Award acceptance speech that pretty much broke the internet back in 2016. The whole room was was standing, and I got emotional watching this again now, thinking that you made this speech four years ago. What do you think about hearing it now? I think that man needs a throat lozenge is what he needs. Um, <laughs> I've been living and behaving and speaking in that tone and tenor my whole life. And uh, I've been, you know, I've been on many news programs uh, speaking in a very similar way. So I just felt like a two, you know, a Sunday night and a, a lovely uh, honor and to, and to say a few things. And um, the moment kind of got the best of me. So, but then, um, but then there were these these yeah. You're 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 saying something that you believe in that you believed in for your whole life, and then there are these petitions to have you fired from Grey's Anatomy because of this this speech. Yeah, that's cool. Like I don't, I don't. That stuff doesn't. It doesn't it's not real life. It doesn't matter to me. You know, I, I you know I say this in five points of incredible privilege and job security. Um, you know, so I also am not worried for those reasons, but you know, it's, it's an acting job. Um, they'll come, they'll go. We have things, you know, I got plenty of other interests. Um, and the, and what was, I I was actually entirely quite disappointed when I, and with the response, um, not in some unexpected way, but that there was no merit to it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I love constructive critique. I love to hit the ball back and forth and get better and be, and learn that I was wrong about something or learn that there's a better way to do this or that. Like that's, that's what fires me up. And when I did decide to kind of rejoin uh, the internet and just catch up on things and all these little <laughs> silly petitions and, and comments, there's just no, there was no there there. And I was like, wow, you guys haven't done it. No, no reflection at all. No, nothing interesting to say whatsoever. Just kind of, um, Desperate flailings into the void. Like, okay, well, anyway, we got work to do. Yeah. On the topic of integrity and actually doing the work, I want to play you a clip. Um, we had John Legend on our show recently, and, and he was talking about celebrity activism. And here's a bit of what he had to say. If you're not doing the work to know what you're talking about, if you're not doing the research to know what you're talking about, if you're not talking actively with organizers and you're just weighing in because you're a famous person who's good at singing or basketball or football or whatever it is, I don't think that's that useful. I think it is useful if you use your platform 
to uh, inform people, to challenge people, to inspire people. If you've done the work to like prepare yourself to know what you're talking about. Um, I know you're someone who does the work. What, what, do, we, what do you make, Jesse, of, of what John's talking about there? Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. He, he's spot on. And it's actually, it's an interesting kernel there because it's very similar to what I just said in the British Vogue um, conversation we just had with some of the other wonderful people that happened to be on the cover, um, which is exactly that. Is that like, I don't, somebody, I, I think the question was posed to me as, do I think that celebrities have an uh, obligation? Um, to which I say, I don't think you, because you have God's gift and you can sing or you can dunk or you can do something um, spectacular, it doesn't mean you have more of an obligation to be a contributing member to society than if you were a teacher or a cab driver. Uh, you know, that's, that's not fair. Uh, what is fair is that with great power comes great responsibility and don't make it worse for us. It's okay to not know. Uh, I don't know a ton. Just ask. Don't go on a tangent or rant hurting people who spent their whole life being hurt about it. Just find out and find out with some compassion for others. Um, so, so yeah, it is a, it's a tricky time for everyone and folks with a, a particularly large platform certainly do sometimes feel like they can be the target, make themselves the target very fast by misstepping. Uh, so act accordingly. We know how to do that in life all the time. There's a, a phrase uh, from, from your BET speech that has been echoing in my ear since, and it's uh, the burden of the brutalized is not to comfort the bystander. Um, and I think also the burden of the brutalized is not necessarily to be the only people who are speaking up for the, the brutalized. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if, if you have any thoughts, because I feel like this is a th that this is something that white celebrities don't have to think about as much or don't have to put themselves on the line about as much. Well, yeah, I think, you know, we measure people. Um, if you're thinking about story, if you're thinking about what actors and writers do when we create narratives for the viewing audience, you learn about a character through conflict. You learn about your friends when you need them, not when everything's great and you have a lot of money and you're paying for everything, but when you're actually down and out or you're having a hard time or you had a hard breakup, that's where people show up for you. Mm -hmm. um, that's where it can be measured because they didn't have to do it. They chose to because it's not a point of convenience or benefit to them. It is a gesture. It is, it is loving without needing anything in return. And that's all that we and, and um, disenfranchised folks have ever asked the same thing asked for same thing everybody else does so yeah because you don't when you don't have to that's when it's an interesting measure and uh, the burden of folks who are being brutalized physically figuratively spiritually uh is to be to feel it to live with it then it's to name it to identify it for yourself to wrestle with that to get it wrong to get it right then it's to possibly say it out loud to somebody in your close circle to see if you're insane or not, like everybody's telling you you are. Then it's when somebody finally does accept that you're not insane and maybe it's not because of the way she was wearing her pants or what she was wearing or what time of night it was, maybe it's for some other reason. Then all that work is just to have that same group in power turn back to you and go, okay, so how do we fix it? <laughs> so we're doing all of the work, <laughs> all of it. And it is uh, that the, the, the grade on, uh, of, the, uh, of the terrain is incredibly steep. Um, I hope some part of that addresses your question. I'm so grateful to you for having said all of it. Um, thank you so much. Appreciate you all. Thank you.
Jesse Williams is an actor, social activist, and the star of the new horror film, Random Acts of Violence. It's available on demand and in select theaters in Canada now. You can find it on Shudder in the U.S. and U.K. on August 20th. Hey, I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power. Here are some stories we're looking at for you today. Louis C.K. is back in the news. You may remember him, the successful comedian with a run of stand-up specials and TV shows until news broke about him sexually harassing women in 2017. That is something he admitted to. Networks like FX and HBO cut their ties with him. Louis kind of fell off the face of the earth. Besides a few stand-up sets in New York, he's been pretty undetectable. Until last week, an Instagram picture was posted of various high-profile comedians on the set of Dave Chappelle's comedy series, nicknamed Chappelle's Summer Camp. There was Dave, Sarah Silverman, Michelle Wolf, Donnell Rawlings, and in the middle of the photo, Louis C.K. Dave Chappelle has never backed down from the support he's shown Louis since the news initially broke, and this is the most recent indication. It is definitely Louis C.K.'s most high-profile appearance to date, and Fans are now wondering if this might lead to a return to the comedy stage. You might have heard by now that going to concerts doesn't really jive with the pandemic. Hmm? As in, you probably shouldn't go to one where there are no masks and no social distancing. But that's not stopping people from going because concerts are still happening. Nothing stood in the way of the 80th annual Sturgis Buffalo Chip Motorcycle Rally and Concert from happening uh, in South Dakota on Sunday night. Thousands of people were there. One of the acts that showed up was none other than the Shrek soundtrackers, Smash Mouth. The band's lead singer even said, quote, bleep that COVID bleep, unquote. I will leave your imaginations to fill in that one. Not everyone billed that night showed up. Acts like Willie Nelson, Leonard Skinner, and ZZ Top all canceled. Though there was a ZZ Top cover band called ZZ3 that ended up creating heat for the real ZZ Top. I guess their beards were very convincing. So here's given a whole new meaning to the famous lines of the Smash Mouth song, All Star, I Ain't the Sharpest Tool in the Shed. Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with from something else is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant does a podcast with available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Talia Schlanger in today for Tom Power. Have a listen to this. You said you'd meet me at quarter to five, and I'm sitting in the quarter past six. Cafe, the Chinese 
That is the late musician Matthew Grimson with a song called Stood Up. And just a warning, the details you're about to hear around his death involve the mention of suicide. If you don't know Matthew Grimson's name, you're not alone. Some of the most intriguing characters in rock and roll are kind of mysterious eccentrics. Outsiders who maybe didn't play stadiums or write top 40 hits. People like Sid Barrett, Rocky Erickson, Daniel Johnston. But they wrote totally unique songs. And in their own quiet way, they had a huge influence on the other artists around them. In Halifax, Matthew Grimson was that person. He didn't play live very much, and he only released one full-length album during his lifetime. But in the Halifax music scene, people would pass around tapes of his songs. Musicians like Chris Murphy from the band Sloan, Joel Plaskett, Al Tuck, and Aaron Costello. Matthew struggled with his mental health, and he died by suicide in 2018 at the age of 50. Chris Murphy and Joel Plaskett were two Halifax artists who recorded with Matthew Grimson over the years. They are the driving force behind a new posthumous collection of his songs called A Prize for Writing. They stopped by to tell us more. Chris Murphy and Joel Plaskett, welcome to Q. Thank you, Talia. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, glad to have you here to talk about Matthew. So, Joel, before we get into his music, can you give us a snapshot of what Matthew was like as a person? Like, when you close your eyes and you think of hanging out with Matthew Grimson, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Well, he was a dreamy, imaginative, uh, unusual kind, uh, and he had this deep knowledge of Music, records, movies, it would go everywhere and you would just sort of watch him get lost in his head and then he'd come back and he'd have a conversation and uh, uh, he's a hard guy to describe because he's complex, but he was, uh, he was really, there was nobody like him. Yeah. Let's hear a taste of, of what he sounded like. Um, here's a little bit of the song by Matthew Grimson called Save the Narwhal. I went drinking with some friends and we went to the living All right, that's uh, Save the Narwhal, Matthew Grimson. When it comes to Matthew's own music, he described his work in just 10 words, psychological metal, verbose pop, queasy balladry, and odd trips. Um, Chris, if you were going to describe Matthew's music in, in just about as many words like that, what would you say? Well, I'm glad that we have Matthew's words to describe it because I think he said it more eloquent than I could have. You know, I, when I got to know Matthew, I got to know him before I knew that what he had for songs and he, uh, you know, he had me join his theoretical band, The Dust Party, this is in the late eighties and it was all about theatrics and, you know, Hey, I'm going to wear a smock, a doctor's smock covered in blood. And you're going to have a McDonald's, <laughs> you're going to get a McDonald's uniform. And, and this is, we had no music. I was like, okay. After I had, was in this theoretical band with him, he started playing me his songs and he just, he blew me away as early as, you know, eight, 1989. He was playing me an 11 minute song suite with all kinds of cinematic, okay, this is this scene in the movie that is the song. You know, he was really kind of out there. And I was learning how to write songs too, but he was just way ahead of me in everything that I was doing. I think of Matthew's music as first and foremost imaginative, but also unsettling, mm. uh, funny, um, confusing sometimes, Very uh, could be very fearless, um, could be sweet and saccharine, and you didn't know if that was tongue-in-cheek or not. 
could be very angry, um, but purposeful is not an easy thing to describe. And it's not necessarily for the faint of heart either, some of his words. You sort of, I mean, he was prolific too, and you sort of- Incredibly prolific. Right? You you collaborated with him in a way, I guess, um, after his his passing with a song from your most recent album, 44, um, you, you did a song called Matthew Grimson Songs, where pretty much every line in the verse we're going to hear is made up of, of titles of songs that that Matthew wrote. So let's have yeah. a listen to this. You don't know how far you would go for a song To save the narwhal, to leave the light on Buddy, you're killing her, revenge and Nadine Breaking up drunk on New Year's Eve To kill a Catholic, the arms dealer's blue La 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 la, I'm not listening to you. One thousand titles, he could open the store. But Matthew doesn't live here anymore. He's out of his head. Joel, that's really beautiful. Um, give us a sense of what it was like to, to, write, to write that song and how prolific Matthew was. Well, I wrote that song... Um, we had a celebration of Matthew's life. Um, I don't know what it would have been, maybe a week or two after his passing. Um, and uh, at Gus's Pub in Halifax, Chris flew down for that. And we put together a, uh, a bunch of people tributed Matthew. He knew a lot of musicians in the scene. He had a lot of friends, you know. Um, and uh, so we had a celebration of his life at, at Gus's and people got up and played his songs. And Chris and I, with Aaron Costello and Clyde McNutt, put together... Uh, uh, a little band did a couple of covers of Matthew's songs, but I wrote that just a couple days before it uh, because I was thinking the thing about Matthew is one of the things that he certainly uh, taught me about was the power of t a title. Hmm. And he would, his titles alone, like I have been the last few days, I've been cataloging some of his, uh, trying to get things into a spreadsheet to figure out. Um, how many songs there were. And we've entered 260 so far, and I suspect we'll be well over 1,000. Um, wow. And really? That, that, I, I don't know. I mean, these are poems. Wow. They're not all songs. They're not all finished recordings. Some are in, in – I don't really know exactly. All I know is it's unbelievable. And the titles alone are evocative. Um, and so I put that verse together to kind of – because I just felt like – I mean – his, his sense of language and and playfulness with language um, was really remarkable. Right, that verse that we heard was was all titles. Those were, of those were all his Grimson titles, songs. other than one thousand titles he could have opened a store. That was my line, but everything else was his, you know, including the last line of that verse, which is Matthew doesn't live here anymore, which is a song I recorded with him. Oh, wow. um, and you know. Uh, and, 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 and so he was very, he was, like I said, he's, he was complex and he, 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 there was, there was struggle in his music and in his mind as well, you know, and he wasn't afraid to, uh, to, to blur those two things together and, uh, take you on a trip, whether, whether, uh, you could handle it or not. Oh man. In such a vulnerable way. Um, we're, we're talking about Matthew Grimson. Uh, he's a, 
beloved songwriter, I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power on Q, Chris Murphy and Joel Plaskett have just released a posthumous album um, by Matthew Grimson. We're celebrating his work and his life. I want to listen to another song that gets to a little bit of what, what Joel was saying, sort of about the complexity and, and vulnerability of Matthew's songwriting and of him as a person. This one's called We've All Got Scars. Matthew Grimson with We've All Got Scars. And the lyrics at the end there were, my little body's just a little like a china shop. The world is a bull and I'm a waving red flag. Chris, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what it was like to spend so much time with Matthew's songs and with lyrics like those? Yeah, when when I've known other people who've died and, uh, but I was able to inhabit all of these songs um, after Matthew died and, and it really, really got to me. I was able to really cry my eyes out and, you know, a line like the world is a bull and I'm a waving red flag. I find so funny, but it's also so sad, you know, it's a person who's, you know, having trouble in the world. Um, and my little body's just like a China shop. It's sad and it's hilarious at the same time. It's, it's a, it's, it's a feeling that I get, you know, the, the, the idea of being simultaneously funny and smart and That's sad right. and dark, it's just, it's so hard to do. And I feel that's what he's able to do all the time. So it, he blows my mind. If I could interject there too, I think one of the remarkable things about Matthew's writing, and it's something that in, even in the world today, we sort of forget through conversations and the sort of polarization of things is that it's, he could hold two opposing ideas in the same space as a writer, Hmm. you know, and, and people do that all the time. And we see that with our loved ones. We contradict ourselves daily. You know, we do something good and bad, what have you, you know, all these things we, we swing like a pendulum and, 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 and yet we're, but, but, but that, that can be, that can spin you around. And so, you know, that that's was sort of what was remarkable about Matthew's ability as a writer was to cross these lines of humor and sadness and uh, fragility and anger and all these things. And it could be kind of confusing uh, and, but it it very rewarding uh, on a, on a, on from a written point of view to see his words written out. Yeah. I mean, it's delicate territory. So, um, so you be my guide in how, and how we talk about this, but you know, you're looking at lyrics like these after, after he's passed away. Um, mm. and I think that, you know, just even hearing a lyric, like my, my little body's just a little, like a China shop thinking about somebody, um, expressing their own fragility or their own vulnerability, or maybe that they don't feel like they're made for this world. Like, what was it like to sort of get to know him retroactively through these lyrics, sort of knowing how things turned out? Well, I would say Matthew's lyrics always, even when he was alive and we knew him, um, skated some thin ice and could make you kind of worried for him, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think, and I think those who knew him would would know what I'm talking about. Um, But... um, that said, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't live in that place all the time. He wrote in that place, you know, and, but he did live in it too. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
and and you know to lose him uh and and to be fair i hadn't seen him in a number of years and i know he'd had ups and downs and all sorts of things and of course you know hindsight is 2020 uh or, or but it's also blurry at the same time you know and and uh but the thing about um when someone is is i guess um on that delicate ice and and since can sort of take you there you're sometimes like hey come back over here it's safer you know um but at the same time you're sort of in awe of somebody who is 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 um but of course what you want for people is 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 balance and 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 peace right mm -hmm. and he didn't always have that so of course you know i wouldn't trade his songs for him. I wish he was here doing this interview. Um, but his art is still remarkable. Yeah. Um, it is remarkable. Chris, if Matthew could see what you guys have done with this album, what do you hope that, that he would say about it? Well, I think um, the people that you listed in your introduction were exactly the it's right up Matthew's alley. I think that's a good company. He turned um, me on to Rocky Erickson. I have a tape of Rocky Erickson from Matthew. So there you go. Yeah, for sure. Like he, I mean, he, he loved all those people. Um, you know, I obviously wish that, uh, that he had some, you know, he was so prolific as Joel said, you know, Joel and I went to visit his sister who showed us that she had, I have tape one, tape two, tape 55, tape 56. And then these hard drives, like he was writing the whole time and Joel's cataloging all these songs, you know, and he was doing all of this um, without really any feedback except for some friends. And, and as Joel said, you know, neither of us, well, especially me, I don't mean to speak for Joel. Like I haven't, I hadn't seen him in a long time. And so the songs on this record are all from written between in 89 and 95. This, the, all these recordings are from 1995 and he was still young and fun. And even though some of the lyrics even then were dark, I would say a lot of them are funny, but some of them are dark for sure. You know, he was just still a young guy with with uh, with possible with possibilities for himself. That uh, you know, they never he never and, and despite never having been really ever, having never really caught on, he just kept going. And that's the other thing that makes me sad, or what I guess it shouldn't make me sad, but it does. You know, he's just. I'm going to write any, I, I have to write. So I'm going to, even though no one is uh, rewarding me for this. And, well, and it's hard to say if it was about, um, I don't think Matthew, he didn't focus his energy on chasing success for what he was doing. He was far more concerned with like writing. I mean, that's, he has a song, the album we called prize for writing, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, cause that was one of his songs. The governor general with a hard to say name has given me 10, a prize for writing. I haven't written anything in 10 months time and they're giving me a prize for writing. Well, you're, you have plans to release more music, right? I, you, you, uh, have recorded some of Matthew's songs with Halifax singer songwriter, Aaron Costello. Are we, are we going to hear those any, any time in the near future? Yeah, I mean, we have some finishing work to do, we, but we, we recorded, I think, eight or nine songs, Chris, Aaron, Clive, and I. But I mean, there's also lots lots of other friends. I think what we want to do is this this one thing we found in Matthew's, uh, in, in one of, in sort of his little pile of notes where his, 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 his description of his own music was, was a little piece of paper and a logo that said the Grimsonian Institute. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, with that in mind, I think that we need to, what we're sort of doing is, you know, loosely organizing the Grimsonian Institute so that we can uh, 
do some tributes to him, maybe re-release some of his things as we can get through them. There's so much, you know. Um, but also, you know, there's lots of friends. I would imagine there'll be other people who want to cover his music. And hopefully if this interview turns some people onto his songs, um, they, they really are like a, they can be like really rewarding in terms of, uh, bringing some very, uh, they're insightful, you know? And, and so anyway, this is sort of, this is the task at hand. It's, it's, it'll be a work in progress, slow, slow, but steady. Well, I'm grateful to you for putting us on to, to Matthew Grimson's work and, and his incredible life of songwriting. We're going to go out on, on his song, Closing Theme. Uh, any, anything you want to squeeze in there before, before we play it? Uh, just how sweet the lyrics are, you know, tie your, grandfather's bow tie give him the boutonniere and straw hat sit him down into his lawn chair he sits up close so he can see i can barely say it without basically crying my eyes out but but it's so it's so sweet that you know if i only knew that song i would think what is this guy on about but i also know that he's also the guy who wrote to kill a catholic or whatever you know he's <laughs> he, he can do it all and uh, but this song is it's uh yeah it's pretty pretty sweet Matthew Grimson's posthumous album, Prize for Writing, is out now. And uh, Joel, where can, where can we find it? Uh, well, we recently uh, we registered MatthewGrimson.com. It was available, so uh, we've set that up, and that'll, that'll send you to the web uh, to be able to buy the record on vinyl or get it off Bandcamp, or you could stream it on streaming services. So uh, it's out there. Chris Murphy and Joel Plaskett, thank you both so much for, for being here. Thank you, Talia. Thank you. Let your daughters off the back porch Dressed in lace and lilac linen Set them down and hush their giggling The closing theme has come to town Tie your grandfather's bow tie That's Closing Theme from the album Prize for Writing, the new posthumous album by Matthew Grimson. Chris Murphy and Joel Plaskett were Matthew's friends and admirers, and they got that album released. You heard my conversation with them earlier. Prize for Writing is out now. And hey, if you or somebody that you know needs help, there is help, okay? Here are some numbers to call. The Canada Suicide Prevention Service's number is one 833 456-4566. If you're in the U.S., you can call 1-800-273-TALK. I'm Talia Schlanger in for Tom Power. Carrie Mae Weems has influenced everyone from Beyonce to Spike Lee. She's a world-renowned photographer and multimedia artist, and she creates images that focus on the lives of Black women. In 2014, she became the first Black female artist to have a retrospective exhibit at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City, and the New York Times has called her, quote, perhaps our greatest living photographer. Her latest public art project is called Resist COVID Take Six, and it raises awareness about how Latinx, Black, and Indigenous people have been disproportionately affected 
by COVID-19. The take six refers to the recommended six feet of separation, you know, when you're social distancing. Right now, you can find Carrie's work on billboards, flyers, and buttons across cities like New York City, Chicago, Atlanta, and Dallas. Tom Power sat down with her last year when she was headlining the Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival in Toronto. And for all her accomplishments, you might be surprised to learn that Carrie didn't plan to be a photographer. She actually spent most of her early life dancing. Yeah. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm sort of a woman connected to my body and to my mind. And um, because dance came so naturally, mm. because movement ca- came so naturally, it wasn't something that I really focused on. It was something that people asked me to do. But I knew very early on in my life, very early, that I was deeply attracted to the arts and uh, felt that I had the mind and the soul of an artist very early in my life. And so I knew that I would do something in the arts. But uh, when I was 17, 16, I wasn't exactly sure what that was, but I had a sense of it. And so it wasn't really until later, until I was about 19 or so, um, that a boyfriend of mine who who was awful in every way, yeah. he gave me a camera. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I, He's good I, for something. He was good for at least one thing. <laughs> and he gave me this camera, and it just, the moment I held it in my hand, the moment I, like, you know, processed my first roll of film, mm-hmm. I knew that this was it, that this was the medium, that this was the thing that was going to lead me through the rest of my life. Can you can you place me in that moment? Like, I'm so curious about that, these sort of transformative moments, what they call flashbulb memory, right? Like something, I bet you remember it vividly. So, so, so incredible. I remember I was in San Francisco, California. I left home when I was very early, you know, young. I left home when I was 16 yeah. and moved to San Francisco, I think maybe, you know, by the time I was 17. And so I was, uh, I was living with my boyfriend and, uh, you know, I was uh, in the apartment uh, photographing my one of my closest friends, mm. looking at her, looking at her through this lens and making all these sort of very particular decisions about how one would need to photograph a woman. Immediately, I needed to make a number of decisions about how something needed to be recorded, how something needed to be made, how something needed to be described, how something needed to be represented. I'm curious about the decision or like the feeling that led you away from photography as a way of documenting, simply documenting the world all around you, but the realization that you could create your own photographs. That you create your own narrative. Yeah. One of those techniques being making you, you yourself the subject of your photography. It was really not my intent, actually, to photograph myself. Um, of course, I had made self-portraits early on. For instance, the Kitchen Table series, which is one of the series that I'm really most known for. Uh, I was living in Northampton, in New England, in a small town, and uh, there were no other African-American women around. And I had very few friends. Also, I work very early and very late. And so I became sort of the perfect subject because of the hours that I kept. (laughs) Not necessarily because I really wanted to photograph myself. Mm -hmm. But then I learned something (laughs) about myself. I learned, actually, that even though I'm not particularly... Like particularly a beautiful woman, that 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 I understood something again about about the body in relationship to the camera and how to use my body in such a way as to sort of situate it so that it could carry um, 
a certain kind of weight and a certain kind of message and a certain kind of gravitas mm-hmm. that I needed the image to do. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to try to do something very dangerous here right now, Uh-oh, but I'm, I'm going to lift this table. Um, I'm going to. I, I'm happy you mentioned the kitchen table series because that's where I wanted to go next. Uh, uh, it's 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 your. I'd say your most famous work, as you said, is the work you're best known for. Uh, the dangerous thing I'm going to do is I'm going to try to describe it to the audience. Uh, I, your eyes are widening, and I have a feeling I can't wait. Oh no! Um, so there's you. You are there. You are the subject of these photographs. You are a, a mother. You are um, a lover. You're, you're a friend. You're in these domestic scenes at the same kitchen table over and over again. Just by virtue that someone can picture that in their head, I think that's, that's what we can say. And I'm, I'm curious as to why you think people were so moved by those photos. That's a really good question because no matter where I go, whether I've shown it in Japan or in South Africa or in England or in Spain, wherever they've been shown, um, both men and women identify with them. We are all asking ourselves, I think, in some way, like, like, who are we really? And who are we in relationship to all others? Who are you in relationship to your partner, to your children, to your friends, and then, of course, to yourself. And what is the – why are we so bound by these relationships that seem to delimit our possibility, that are completely based on traditional notions of family, even when we want more than that or less than that, but something other than that? But we're still locked and bound by them, by the rules of play mm. and the rules of negotiation mm. of family structure. I see oftentimes your work is described as ahead of its time. How do you feel about that characterization that perhaps your work and in in how influential it was, was, quote, ahead of its time? Um, I think that's true. And I say this not, I hope, I hope, Tom, not out of ego, but out of real clarity of understanding. The work is larger than me. Not that I'm just interested in um, my own celebrity or my own fame, but rather I'm deeply interested in the field, in expanding the field and what the field could be. I, um, I, I want to ask you a question that might sound trite, but I don't mean it to be because I was just thinking about... I can't imagine you asking a trite question. Well, know that, know that this isn't my intention. <laughs> One folklorist to another. I promise there's some cultural meaning behind this. I was just thinking about how, how meaningful it was for you to hold a camera when you were 20 years old. And now, like, everyone just has this. Everyone has a camera with them all the time. And more often than not, the camera's turning the other way. And we oh are God. putting ourselves in our photos. I can't take it. I was just on a beach in Cuba and every single person was photographing themselves. I thought, oh my, what a horrible, what, what a horrible thing. This way, this, 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 this incredible, you know, the thing that's so amazing about social media was that social media was meant to be social, but it's really sort of failed on its promise thus far. And what it has done actually is to create um, <laughs> enormous isolation. But I guess the, I guess what what I was thinking about was this was a, this was a moment. I'm no defender of social media, but I was thinking of this is a moment where people are able to make themselves the subjects of their own lives, the subjects of their own photography. I don't quite get it. 
Facebook was really sort of developed for all the wrong reasons, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was really sort of, you know, a, a platform that, that was used to bash women, mm -hmm. you know, who, who to, were not to, particularly interested in, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. To I judge mean, them. Right, exactly. To see was, whether they were hot exactly, or not. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so, so, so in, in, in some weird way, it's sort of, you know, doing exactly what it was intended to do. <laughs> but, um, but I think in un, un, unintended ways, it's sort of unintended consequences of action. So, so, I, so I get it. I mean, I understand the ideas about self-representation, but I also understand something about the problem of it as well, the problems that it's sort of uh, inducing. I want to talk about another series uh, called Not Monet's Type. You play, um, or you are this uh, amuse undressing in, I have trouble with that word, but you're, you're amuse undressing in a bedroom. Each photo has a caption beneath it. Would you mind reading some of these captions for me? We printed a couple of them off. Sure. It was clear I was not Monet's type. Picasso, who had a way with women, only used me, and Duchamp never even considered me. But it could have been worse. Imagine my fate had de Kooning gotten hold of me. And so... But what, what would have happened then? That is um, for um, you to decide. <laughs> <laughs> I love how... I don't know how to say this. It's kind of funny it is. Yeah, it like, is. It's, it's kind, of, kind of cheeky, right? Yeah. Yes, I think that's important. I think that's important think, in telling these kinds of stories. I think humor is really important. You think the so? The use yeah? of humor is really important. You know, there's this really great Al Delusion um, folk saying that within seriousness, there's very little room for play. But within play, there's tremendous room for seriousness. Yes? I love that so much. That's right? so – I think I needed to hear that my entire right? life. That's so great. So that's yeah. like yeah. kind of where you are. Mm -hmm. And so the, the subjects that I'm dealing with, I've really quite loaded – very, very, very complicated things. Um, I was with um, Elizabeth Dillard the other day, who uh, is the uh, uh, architect and uh, designer, for instance, of the High Line and any number of really sort of significant institutions. And she said, you know, you know, even though your work is like incredibly political, it never beats, never beats you over the head. And that's important? Well, I think it is because, you know, I said to her, well, you know, I don't really have a message. Yeah, I have concerns. I have deep concerns questions, about any yeah. questions and concerns. And so those are, those are, you know, the questions and concerns, they guide me. So I'm not necessarily looking for a message and I'm not trying to convey a message, but I am trying to unpack many, many, many ideas in relationship to class, as you, mm -hmm. class mm -hmm. and ethnicity, gender. Now, how do you deal with that kind of material? Right. Well, you know, I'm not a documentary photographer. Mm -hmm. I'm not a, a documentary storyteller. I'm not a, a documentary filmmaker. Uh, but I am d deeply, deeply interested in in history. So, how do I use that, and how do I sort of, you know, inform both myself, mm. along with my audience, to sort of look at this complicated material, and to f and to and to begin to sort of posit ways that we might move forward. Mm. And not as uh, brown people or, or white people or men or as women, but how do we do that um, collectively um, in our human spirit? Does that come from your folks? Like, where does that come from? That that idea that you know, it kind of, if you want to reach people, you have to kind of reach past the brain and into the cerebral cortex a little bit. You Don't have to you? you have to get to the spine a little bit. You know? Yeah, you have to get to the humanity. Where do you think that comes from? Where do, do you think you learned that at a young age? Is that something you picked up along the way? 
I did from my father. Yeah, he was from like my family. That? He was like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm very lucky. I mean, I, I come from a, really a terrific family. My mother, my father. My mother's a fabulous woman. Great, passionate, great, passionate woman with a, an amazing spirit, incredible insight, very smart. And my father, incredibly generous and hilarious, and a great storyteller, and handsome and debonair, and uh, and who just taught me at a very young age. I think probably the most important lesson, which was that I simply had a right, that I had a right to be, and uh, anywhere, that anywhere, yeah. has been very, very, very important mm. to me. It's probably been important to you as well, mm. right? Because we were asked to show up at a lot of stuff, you know, you know, I and mean, you know, you're like, hot for, you know, for the most part, you're hanging with the one percent, you mm. know, mm. and I'm like the one percent of like, the, you know, the ninety nine percent that you know could be there. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm really the only one who has margarine there, in his know? fridge, you know. Exactly. Yeah, I know what you mean. So it's really kind of it's really <laughs> sort of interesting, you know, you know where where this work takes you, where our, our work takes us into these, you know, the, like the stratosphere. Mm. of the of the of of the country of class mm. and culture mm. and so being able to sort of look at that close up i think is really very important but i feel very uncomfortable i feel very comfortable there you know it doesn't really matter to me how much money you have because ultimately at the end of the day as my father would say every man has got to get up and put on his pants one leg at a time mm-hmm. I am, I'm curious though because you know as I mentioned you're here for the Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival some of your photos are on display just down the road from here at the, at the TIFF Lightbox and, and the photos um, they're, they're called scenes and takes, right? And what I'm often seeing is kind of behind the scenes, for better or for worse. Again, this is terrifying. Uh, behind the scenes images of TV sets, of, of of the inner mechanics of the entertainment that we watch. And, you know, and you're, you're, you're telling me these stories about about reality, you know, and we're, we're talking about selfies and we're talking about people reflecting themselves but doing it in quite a, you know, often a narcissistic way or a way that is ultimately antisocial. I can't help be interested that you're photographing the inner workings of an entertainment complex, you know, a thing that we watch on television keeps us captivated for an hour or so. You know, I, I, I've been trying to tell people or thinking rather for for a, a bit now that uh, I'm really only interested like in a couple of things, right? And I've only been interested like in a couple of things most of my life. All of them, one way or another, have to do with sort of culture and history. Yeah. And what's going on culturally and how are people situated culturally and how are men positioned and how are women positioned and how are African-Americans positioned and how are other groups positioned within the culture? How are they positioned? I am always looking at that and I've always paid attention to that since the very, very beginning. And so, you know, I used to be just completely despondent that I would, you know, you know, I could, you know, try to look at, you know, everything on television and maybe I might see an African-American somewhere in the background doing something. Maybe it was, you know, you know, Casablanca, you yeah. know, it was Sam, yeah. I mean, you know, whatever. But, you know, but being simply aware of what was being made and how it was being made. And then, you know, there was a – so I've been paying attention to Hollywood and popular culture for many, many years. And then there was a moment when somebody like Lee Daniels kind of sprung on the scene with Empire – I thought, oh, oh, this is interesting. Like, this is like a cultural break. This is a cultural break in Hollywood. Hollywood has not done anything like, definitely not like Empire. Now, this is significant. What does this mean, 
right? And then Chandra Rhimes, right? And Scandal, and how mm. to get away with murder and Grey's Anatomy. What is happening here? There's a shift that's happening here. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, this is really fabulous. This is fantastic, right? Has to do with, you know, the demographics that are shifting in the country. Hollywood finally understanding that these demographics are shifting, that new territories are necessary, mm. that new representations are necessary. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, let's go, let's go image this stuff. Let's go photograph these sets. Let's go, let's go look at these sets. Let's go see how they're made, you know, who's on them, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And scenes and takes are sort of based on that inquiry of what is going on within contemporary culture. I love that you're you're still doing anything, man. I mean, you're you're at this point that you could be on a beach drinking a margarita for the rest of your Which life. Which is probably you could. what I should be doing. Yeah. <laughs> what's what's keeping you? What's keeping you making and creating? Well, you know, I'm really hungry and I'm really greedy. Yeah. And uh, and I'm and of course, and I'm deeply curious. But you know, I'll, I'll say this, and then I'll, I'll, I'm gonna let you go because I know you've got other things to do besides all, talk. To all me. I'm gonna do when we're done is look at more quilts with you. Is all I'm gonna do. I want to point out that before we started. You showed me some amazing quilts. Yes, yeah. by the G's Ben Quilters. Yeah. Some of the great, great quilt makers, um, uh, certainly in the United States. That's all I'm going to be doing is reading about quilts. Anyway, <laughs> please continue, continue on. Well, you know, photographs and art tell us who we are, and they explain where we are. They explain the unexplainable. They show us ourselves in unique ways, in ways that are almost impossible to grasp, in any other form, in any other medium. What a dream. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for inviting me. That was the photographer Carrie Mae Weems. Tom Power spoke with her when she was headlining the Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival in Toronto last year. Carrie's latest public art project is called Resist COVID Take Six. It raises awareness of how the COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately affected Latinx, Black, and Indigenous people. You can find it on billboards, flyers, and buttons across cities like Chicago, Atlanta, Dallas, and New York City. That's it for Q, the podcast today. Coming up tomorrow, I'm really looking forward to this chat. The singer Kaiza, you might remember her, her massive hit song, Hideaway, with that video, that single take video where she was just dancing, just dancing her face off. It was so great. Um, she's put out a new album, or she's about to put out a new album, which under normal circumstances is a major accomplishment. But under these circumstances, it is nothing short of remarkable. She had a traumatic brain injury a couple of years ago, and we'll talk about what it was like to recover and create at the same time. I'm Talia Schlanger, in for Tom Power. I'll see you on Q tomorrow. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.